From the Heritage Foundation, this is Heritage Explains. This week at the Heritage Foundation, we are very excited to be putting out a new documentary in honor of School Choice Week. It features voices from four schools in one of the most pro-education choice states in America, Arizona. Here are some of the kids we talked to. My favorite subject is probably writing or math. Spelling. Composition and grammar. Spelling. Well, I think the minuses are so fun, but the pluses I think are so hard. We are reading different books like Little Bear and Frog and Toad. We do problems on the whiteboard like 53 plus 72 and stuff. A hyrax is like this little animal. They kind of look like a rabbit. I like it way better than my other school. As education research fellow Jason Bedrick, also an Arizonan, explains in the video, Arizona has done a good job of passing laws that broaden school options for kids. These include education savings accounts, so students can apply government educational money to things like private schools, homeschooling, and online learning, as well as tax benefits for people and organizations who donate to scholarship funds. And Arizona is not the only state that is getting on the bandwagon. Having spent generations virtually locked into public schools, parents in the U.S. are increasingly interested in having more options available to where they send their kids to school. Last year, 72% of parents considered new schools for their children, and less than 30% of parents think that the same school type works for all of their kids. So what kind of progress has been made in education choice, and how much further do we have to go? Well, Jason sat down with education choice advocate Corey DeAngelis to find out. Hello and welcome back to the Heritage Explains podcast. I'm your host, Jason Bedrick. I'm a research fellow at the Heritage Foundation Center for Education Policy. It's National School Choice Week, and I'm very excited to be joined by the foremost advocate for school choice in this country, a senior fellow at the American Federation for Children, Corey DeAngelis. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me, Jason. Corey, uh, for the last few years, every year, school choice advocates have said, this has been the biggest year school choice has ever had, and it's been true every year. This past year, we had seven states pass new education choice policies, nine states pass uh, expand existing policies. We now have nine states, uh, almost 10, that offer education choice to every single K-12 student in the state. Uh, why are we seeing so much success? Why is school choice winning? Look, Jason, we're winning so much, I'm almost getting tired of winning. Uh, just kidding. We have a lot more states to go. We're about a fifth of the way there. I'm not going to stop until we have school choice for every single student all across the country. But the, the the long story short is that the teachers unions overplayed their hand and awakened a sleeping giant, parents who want more of a say in their kids' education. You had Randy Weingarten and the other union bosses fear-mongering every step of the way. The Chicago teachers unions, they even deleted a tweet claiming that the push to reopen schools is rooted in sexism, 
racism and misogyny. They threw every buzzword at the wall to see what would stick, and people weren't falling for it, especially because of the hypocrisy that was nonstop. The Chicago Teachers Union had a board member vacationing in Puerto Rico while railing against going back to work in person. I mean, it was just, it was totally night, it was clear as day to anybody that they weren't actually afraid to go back to work. They just wanted to hold children's education hostage to secure multiple multi-billion dollar ransom payments from the taxpayer because they were able to say, we're not open because we need more money. Just like they do every year when they're failing based on test scores, they say, oh, well, we're, we have a 25% proficiency rate because we don't have enough money. It's, it's throwing more money at the problem, doesn't actually solve it. It's the definition of insanity and it doesn't actually fix anything because they control a monopoly that has no incentive to spend dollars wisely. But the unintended benefit of the school closures that were induced by the unions, I mean, you had Randy Weingart's union lobbying the CDC to make it more difficult to reopen schools in person. You had them threatening safety strikes when it was clear as day that it was safe to reopen schools, which should have been the first things to open and the last things to close because children had a very low risk of actually uh, having issues with the virus, is that families got to see a little bit of what was going on in the classroom. That was the unintended benefit of the school closures is that, as Vody Bauckham said, we cannot continue to send our children to Caesar for their education and be surprised when they come home as Romans. While parents started to see that there was not just education going on in the classroom, but in political indoctrination coming from the left and families don't want to send their kids to institutions where they feel like they're being brainwashed for 13 years. So parents started to push back at the school board meetings. That didn't work all the, out all that well. They got labeled as domestic terrorists for pushing back against CRT and other indoctrination in the classroom when they just wanted the basics, math, reading, and writing. Uh, and so families started to say, well, maybe I should take my money elsewhere. Maybe I'll have more agency if I can vote with my feet. Uh, and so they started to push in capitals for school choice, having the money follow the child so that they won't even have to exercise that choice uh, when it comes down to it. Because next time they go to the school board meeting, they could say what they like and they won't get labeled as domestic terrorists. They won't have their mics cut off anymore because the school board member members will start to realize, well, maybe those parents, um, they might take some money with them this time if they have school choice. So now we have nine states with universal school choice in the past two years alone. It's become a GOP litmus test issue as well. You look in Texas, where I live, 88% of Texas Republican primary voters supported school choice on the ballot in 2022, which was up nine points uh, since it was last on the ballot in 2018. And this has become a conservative issue like uh, pro-life and, and lowering taxes. Uh, because the left has controlled the education system for far too long. So in other words, in addition to, you know, schools not meeting parents' needs during COVID because of the shutdowns, even after parents uh, had their kids going back to school, they were paying more attention and they noticed that there was a big gap between the values that they were trying to inculcate at home and the indoctrination that they were receiving at school. And so they said at a certain point after they couldn't reform the system, they said, fine, then we're just going to choose schools that work for us and align with their values. That's right. The arguments for school choice have kind of shifted away from just being for a few kids that are stuck in inner city, failing government-run schools based on test scores. Parents started to see another dimension of school quality that's arguably more important than anything that be can be captured by a standardized test, which is whether the school's curriculum aligns with families' values. That's much more likely to mobilize parents to 
to fight back for real political change. And in a sense, for far too long in K-12 education, the only special interest represented the adults, the employees in the system. But now the kids have a union of their own. They're called parents and they're pushing back harder than ever. And politicians are listening. There wasn't a red wave in, in the 2022 midterms. There wasn't a blue wave, obviously, but there was a school choice wave. 76% of the candidates supported by my organization, the American Federation for Children, won their races in 2022. And we didn't just play in the easy ones. We targeted 69 incumbents in state legislatures. That's the hardest thing to do in politics. And we took out 40 of them, sent a clear message uh, that if you po oppose parental rights in education, you're going to lose your job, particularly as a Republican. Look at what happened with uh, Glenn Youngkin beating Terry McAuliffe in Virginia as well in 2021 in their governor's race. In a blue state that went 10 points to Biden the year before, Terry McAuliffe lost to Glenn Youngkin, a Republican, with education voters by six points. And that was the number two issue in that election after he said infamously on the final debate stage, I don't think parents should be telling schools what they should teach. That didn't work out for him. And Glenn Youngkin basically laid out a blueprint for success for Republicans going forward. Lean into parental rights as a political winner, and it'll become a form of political suicide for Democrats to oppose it. So you had massive victories last year. Florida, Arkansas, Iowa, Ohio, a whole bunch of states that went universal. What state should we be watching this year? Well, the long story short is that we have nine states with universal school choice already. They all uh, are controlled by Republican legislatures. Most of them had GOP trifectas as well with governors controlling uh, the Republican governors controlling the governor's office as well. Um, and so we have 22 states, I'd say, with GOP trifectas right now where you have full control by Republicans uh, over the legislature and the governor's office. So that means we, we're only about halfway there on, on the red states. Uh, so you should expect the states that haven't already gone all in with school choice to advance the ball forward in 2024 and beyond. So I'm, I have my eyes set on Louisiana. Their only holdup in Louisiana was they had a Democrat governor, Bell Edwards, who would veto school choice bills every time they got to his desk. Last year, they actually had a universal school choice bill pass their House of Representatives very easily. And then it kind of stalled there because we all knew that the governor was going to, to veto it. But now they have Jeff Landry, a Republican, in control of the governor's mansion in Louisiana. He's, he's, he ran on uh, education freedom. He voted for school choice when he was in Congress. He's a supporter during his state of the state uh, address. He also mentioned empowering parents as well. So I expect Louisiana to go all in. Tennessee Governor's Bill Lee has a proposal to expand school choice to all families uh, in the state as well. Uh, they have a targeted program right now to a few counties. They want to unleash education freedom to everybody. So in Tennessee, the 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 story's pretty uh, pretty clear. The Republicans, which control super majorities of both chambers, there have a very easy choice this uh, this year. They either side with the Democrats and the Tennessee Three, or side with Republicans, parents, their own party platform, and Governor Bill Lee. It's a very easy choice for Republicans in that state. Uh, you can look at Mississippi, which has been a, a laggard for a while on school choice. They're starting to talk about education freedom. You look at Wyoming. Wyoming uh, had a majority of their cha of both chambers co-sponsoring universal school choice last year, and the speaker killed it. He turned around this year introducing his own school choice bill. Uh, so maybe there's hope for momentum in Wyoming. Uh, you look at Alabama. Governor Kay Ivey is coming out forcefully in support of school choice. So is the lieutenant governor, Will Ainsworth in Alabama. 
Uh, so basically, I could keep listing off different states. How about Georgia? Yeah, Governor Kemp in the state of the state. I think the first Georgia governor to ever call for private school choice in the state of the state was Governor Kemp earlier this month when he called to get the the bill their first education savings account program across the finish line to his desk so he could sign it. So they already passed that bill last year through the Senate, strictly along party lines. All the Republicans voted for it. And then it died in the House of Representatives with 16 so-called Republicans voting against their own party platform to cheers from the uh, from all the Democrats in the chamber for, for them joining their side. Well, they have another opportunity before the election to do the right thing and, and vote for empowering parents in Georgia. Look, in Georgia, they had school choice on the ballot in 2022 as well, with 79% of Republican primary voters in Georgia supporting school choice at the ballot box. That should be a clear message to Republicans. They should do the right thing in Georgia and vote with Governor Kemp. They have an easy choice. You either side with the Democrats uh, and um, Stacey Abrams, or you can side with Republicans, your own party platform, and Governor Brian Kemp. Well, how about your home state of Texas? Uh, that was a big missed opportunity this last year. I know Governor Abbott has been a strong advocate in Texas, uh, but they just couldn't get it across the finish line. What were the obstacles there? And what do you think we're going to see going forward? Yeah, so it easily passed the Senate in my home state of Texas, 18 to 13, with all Republicans except for one voting for empowering parents with, with school choice. It moved over to the House where it faced some opposition from some rural Republicans. You had uh, 21 so-called Republicans vote against their own party platform and with the teachers unions in Randy Weingarten to kill school choice in the Texas House. Well, only 16 of them are running for re-election. Maybe the other five saw, uh, read the tea leaves and saw that uh, it's probably not a good idea to oppose parents at this point in time in the great state of Texas, especially with Governor Abbott uh, uh, declaring that there will be political consequences for uh, people who oppose parental rights and education in the Texas legislature. Well, now fast forward to uh, January of 2024, all 16 of those guys running for re-election have primary opponents who support school choice, uh, and the primary election is March 5th uh, of this year. So, I mean, they should have just done the right thing and voted for school choice to begin with. They could have seen this movie uh, playing out before you looked at Iowa that passed school choice in 2023 and in, in, in January 2023, first state to go to universal that year. Well, uh, Governor Reynolds tried to push for school choice in 2022. It easily passed their Senate with only one Republican defection, moved over to the House that was 60 percent uh, controlled by Republicans, couldn't get it done. Uh, well, they got a new house in Iowa and Governor Reynolds endorsed a bunch of the guys uh it made endorsements against a bunch of the guys who oppose school choice. They got a new house. They passed a real universal school choice bill in 2023. And so the same thing's playing out right now in Texas, where all the guys who voted against school choice uh, have primary opponents. A bunch of, our, of, of, of the uh, supporters of school choice are endorsed by Governor Abbott. Uh, my group, the American Federation for Children, is getting involved in the races as well. And parents are paying attention and they're going to hold politicians accountable at the ballot box. So amidst all of these victories, there was one major loss last year, uh, which was Illinois. Uh, Illinois was the first state to actually have a, a school choice program that had been implemented go away when the state legislature failed to extend the program 
The program had a five-year sunset. It had been extended uh, by a previous legislature for one year, um, but this year's legislature did not extend it anymore. Uh, at the same time, in, in Arizona, we had a governor who was coming after the program, uh, and yet she failed to, uh, to to even make a dent in the ESA program. What sort of lessons can we learn from from these two states and their very different outcomes? Well, both these governors are school choice hypocrites. Katie Hobbs in Arizona went to private school herself, and Governor Pritzker, who did nothing to leave and lift a finger to save the empowerment schol- the, the scholarship program out in in Illinois, he went to private school, sent his own kids to private school, and I don't blame them for that. But they shouldn't pull the ladder up from behind themselves and fight against school choice for others, particularly lower income families. But if you look at the this tale of two states, when you look at Arizona versus Illinois, the main story is you should try to go universal whenever you can. Get as many families benefiting from the program as possible so you create a new constituency to, de- to defend the program whenever authoritarians in office try to get rid of it and to rip scholarships away from the hands of children. In Illinois, they had a targeted program for lower-income families, uh, only a few thousand students benefiting from the program. Uh, it's a lot ha- more difficult to save the program if you have a smaller constituency defending it. Whereas in Arizona, they already had students using the empowerment scholarship, uh, the, the, the education savings account program out in Arizona for over a decade. And now fast forward to today, you have over 70,000 families benefiting from the private school choice program in Arizona. Well, what happened was you had the union-backed group, Save Our Schools Arizona. They tried to put it on the ballot to get rid of the program that a lot of families were already using. And in order to do that in Arizona, you have to get a certain number of signatures. They ended up lying about the signatures, or they were just doing common core math because they said that they turned in like twice as many signatures as they actually had. You went and did the uh, the counts, and they had far fewer signatures than they needed to qualify to even get it on the ballot. They might have lied to try to hold to to try to hold the program uh, and pause the program as long as possible to slow down school choice, even though they knew they couldn't stop it. But the reason that they didn't even get enough signatures, they should have been able to get enough signatures. They have plenty of money. They have plenty of people to go uh, to go to petition gathering locations was that you had the families fighting back as well. Parents showed up to the signature gathering uh, locations that were organized by the unions and they went and, and revealed the facts about school choice to the voters so that the Save Our Schools Arizona group couldn't just lie to voters and deceive them into signing something uh, that that wasn't actually uh, how they portrayed uh, the, the petition. Parents got to show up and, and show the facts and say, look, my kids are actually benefiting from this program. It doesn't hurt the public schools. It actually makes them better. Arizona public schools have only gotten better as they've expanded school choice. Nationwide, 26 of 29 studies actually find private school choice competition leads to better outcomes in public schools. Public schools up their game in response to competition, and in that way, school choice is a rising tide that lifts all boats. So I think the lesson that you learn here is go as big as possible. If you make a if you make a proposal for a small program, it doesn't matter how big or small the proposal is. The teachers union is going to scream bloody murder, act like their hair is on fire, and and act like the uh, they'll they'll scream chicken little, act like the sky is falling, and um, no matter if the program is targeted to one percent of the population or if everybody's eligible, so you might as well mobilize your coalition by going all in. And you also start with a better uh, bargaining position if you start with the universal. Let's say you only get to 50% eligibility at the end of the day. Uh, that's better than starting 
uh, proposal that's only 1% and then uh, ultimately it might get killed uh, because you have nowhere else to go, no, no other concessions to make. Uh, and, and by the way, uh, just from a moral standpoint, Everybody should be guaranteed a publicly funded education. They already are. We don't limit uh, access to government-run schools based on your income. You shouldn't limit access to school choice based on your income either. Everyone should be able to take their kids' education dollars to the education provider they're choosing, whether that's a public school, private school, charter school, or home-based education option. We shouldn't be picking winners and losers. All right. So in other words, policymakers should go big or go home. That's right. How can viewers who are interested in working to expand education, freedom, and choice in their own state help do that? Well, you can donate to Heritage Foundation and the American Federation for Children because we're doing work on the ground to expand school choice. Both of our groups are working really well together to do so. But you can also follow us on Twitter. You can follow me on Twitter It's or X. It's at DeAngelis Corey. You can also sign the Education Freedom Pledge. You just go to educationfreedompledge.com. You can follow bills in your state that are have that have momentum and you can also see other ways that you can help there Uh, but jason i also want to hit on one more thing about the texas debate is that yes the the guys who voted against school choice were already endorsed and funded by the teachers unions we already knew that they just didn't support school choice for other reasons but they try to have their cake and eat it too by providing an excuse as to why it's okay to be a republican to vote against your own party platform and they try to give themselves a pass by saying, well, I live in a, a rural area, so I don't have to vote for school choice. And it's the most brain dead argument that I've ever seen against school choice, because they'll say two things in, in, in the same sentence, basically, that are logically incompatible with one another. They'll say, on the one hand, we, we can't benefit from this in my area because the public school is the only option. And then the next breath with a straight face, they'll look you in the eye and they'll try to tell you that, well, we can't have this because school choice is going to defund by fantastic rural public school. Well, wait, which one is it? If your school is so fantastic, you should have nothing to worry about, first of all. But more importantly, if you don't have any exit options, if families can't vote with their feet to other uh, alternatives, well, then no one's going to leave your fantastic rural public school. You should be the last person arguing that school choice is a bad thing on on its supposedly defunding uh, the traditional public school uh, in your district. And if you look at voters, the latest uh, polling from UT Austin, University of Texas at Austin, they find that rural voters, if anything, are more supportive of, of education savings accounts than voters in suburban and urban areas. So if anything, you should be more likely to vote for school choice if you're from a rural area, not less likely. And historically... Some uh, the the nine most rural states in the country, actually, according to the U.S. Census Bureau today, already have some form of private school choice, including West Virginia, the first state to go universal back in 2021. West Virginia is much more rural than Texas, and they have universal school choice already. So that wasn't a barrier for the nine most rural states in the country. And historically, Maine and Vermont, they have the oldest voucher programs in the country, and they were specifically designed in the late 1800s for students in rural areas that didn't even have public schools. They understood a long time ago, over 100 years ago, that not having a lot of options is an argument to expand opportunity in school choice, not to restrict it. They gave vouchers to families to take to other public schools in other areas or to private religious or non-religious schools. So rural states should do the same thing today. And guess what? 
Arizona has rural areas. Florida has rural areas. They passed school choice. It was no problem. And in fact, over the past couple of decades, since Florida has expanded school choice, the number of private education providers in the most rural counties in Florida has actually doubled according to Step Up for Students. So if you build it, they will come. You give the families the funding and let them choose. Well, supply is going to respond to demand. If parents need alternatives, especially with education savings accounts, you can have low-cost alternatives popping up in rural areas like micro schools and homeschool co-ops. You don't have to use the funding for a brick and mortar private school, which is uh, very beneficial to to voters in rural areas too. Uh, so this is just an excuse. It's not a real argument against school choice and Republican primary voters are not having it. You looked at the Texas Republican primary ballot initiative, uh, the initiative that was non-binding in 2022. If you look at uh, the rural versus non-rural areas, Support was on average 88%. So it, it, it was not less, there was not a lower amount of support in the rural areas in Texas either. Well, support for school choice is uh, massive nationwide. Uh, happy school choice week to all those who celebrate. Our guest today has been Corey DeAngelis, Senior Fellow at the American Federation for Children. You've been listening to Heritage Explains. I'm Jason Bedrick. Catch you next time. Thank you to Jason Bedrick and Corey DeAngelis for their contributions to this episode. You can find Jason on X at Jason Bedrick, as well as at Heritage.org. You can also find the documentary featuring the triumphs of school choice policy in Arizona on the Heritage Foundation YouTube channel. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. In addition, you can find Corey DeAngelis on X at DeAngelis Corey. You can also find the organization he leads, the Education Freedom Institute, at efinstitute.org. As always, thank you for listening to Heritage Explains. If you have any feedback, thoughts, or questions, of course you can send them to heritageexplains at heritage.org. We look forward to hearing from you. Take care. We'll see you next week. Heritage Explains is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It's written and produced by Mark Ghani, Lauren Evans, and John Pop.